the book of Zechariah. And uh, wonderful, wonderful truth in the third chapter. Now, let me remind us of two things. One, the, the history of this book is that the exiles are returning to rebuild their city and their temple from 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And because they don't get on with the business of building the temple, God sends two prophets to encourage them, messages of encouragement and hope. These two prophets are Haggai and Zechariah. And so the messages of Zechariah are messages of hope and encouragement to people who had, um, who had stopped the main purpose of their life and that is to put God and the worship of God and the house of God in the center of their very existence. And so there is a, there are, there is a series of visions that comes to Zechariah that he passes on to these people that encourages them and, and more or less prods them to get on building the temple. There's more to than just building the building, really. It's to get on with the uh, fact of making God the center of your being so that everything else is, is a, the result of God being in the center of your life. That's what he's talking about. There's a second thing I need to remind us of. It's a thing we learned a long time ago. That is that you get the principles of the Christian life in the New Testament and you get the pictures of the Christian life in the Old Testament so that the Old Testament comes alive when you read it on the basis of that general fact, that truth, that what you have in the New Testament in principle, you have in the Old Testament in illustration or picture. So you're going to see tonight some marvelous principles illustrated in these graphic pictures in the book of Zechariah. And that's thrilling itself. It, it, this is a, um, a marvelous chapter, trying to, trying to get you awake here and get you with it, all right? Now, I want us just to look at verse 1, and then we'll look later on. We're going to do this kind of in a um, you know, Bible study kind of a deal. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Jehovah and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now what we have is, the, is three figures that have come to the prophet's spiritual vision, not his physical vision, but his spiritual vision. Three figures. One of these is Joshua, the high priest. Now Joshua is not the Joshua that followed Moses. It's not him. It's another Joshua. Not the one that led the people over the Jordan to conquer Jericho hundreds of years before. This is the real, this is a, a guy who is contemporary to Zechariah. He's the high priest who functioned in the not yet built temple. And they saw this man every day. Did they see Joshua? The second figure is Satan who accuses him, the great accuser. And the third is the angel of Jehovah. This is a theophany, a, a manifestation of God in physical form. 
Now, we need to get a meaning of this grand symbolism. First of all, there is this character of the high priest. He appears at the bar of God laden, laden with, the, with, with Israel upon him. That is, he stands before the bar of God representing the nation of Israel. He's not there as an individual standing before God. He is there with Israel's concentrated in him so that what befalls him is to befall uh, Israel. He has dirty garments on. Now wherever you look in the Bible, dirty um, apparel is symbolical of sin. Evil over, even over in the New Testament, it talks about putting aside the filthy garments, you know, laying aside the old dirty clothes, etc. So that when you see dirty dress, it's a familiar symbol of sin so that he stands before the judgment in filthy garments, but he's bearing not his own sin but he's bearing the sin of Israel. Now, there are two great truths in this vision. The first has to do with the reality of Christ's priesthood. Now watch this. We have one who stands before the God of judgment representing us, bearing our sin. It's called justification. It means that God has laid upon one high priest the sin of all of us, and he stands before God bearing our sin. Now, there are two illustrations I, I, I think that I want to give to, to kind of picture that. One is an illustration of that verse of Scripture that says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord, that is Jehovah, has laid on him all of our iniquity. Okay? So let's just play like that this is a book that contains the record of your sin or my sin. All the sin you've committed, all the sin you will commit. It'd have to be in micro microfilm, you know, for, to get it in a book this size for some of you. I know you. <laughs> I know me, okay. This, this is a book that contains the record of our sin. This hand represents Jesus, okay. This hand represents you or me. Now, where is our sin? It's on us, right? And the Bible says that God has laid on him all of our iniquity. Now, on whom is our sin? On Jesus, and the picture that is drawn here is the picture of one who stands before God bearing your sin and mine so that you're no longer responsible for it. He has taken it and placed it on Jesus. There's another picture I think that we uh, you know, need to see with regard to justification. That is, let's, let's pretend that this book contains the record of your sin and mine. So God one day, this is, uh, you know, this is, this is a parable, so God one day turns over in this book and he finds your name there. And he looks on your page that is the record of your sin under your name and he takes that sin away from that page. And he turns in his book over to the page that has the name Jesus on it. And he puts on his page your sin. That's a glorious, wonderful thing. It's not all there is, however. He takes the righteousness of Jesus off of his page, 
all the good, the righteousness of Jesus. And he turns the book back to your page and he puts his righteousness on your page. Now your book contains this. It contains the transference of your sin to Jesus and the transference of his righteousness to you. So that what you have before God is one who is clothed in your sin and you're clothed in his righteousness. And we're going to see a picture of that in just a moment. Glorious and wonderful thing. The second thing it talks about here is, is that because he is, the second uh, idea of this is that because he is our representative, then our sin is covered by his, his act, his, his righteousness, his deed, his blood, so to speak. Now I was... Uh, uh, there last Wednesday, uh, Thursday night, when uh, the big guy who uh, was preaching this morning. Now, uh, I'm glad you you uh, didn't think. Well, since I got an hour sermon this morning, I don't have to have. You know, I've had two for the day. But it's, uh, well, I enjoyed every minute of it. To be honest with you. But I, w- I was I was listening to him preach uh, Thursday night, and he talked about something that you know that he and I need to maybe have a little discussion about about um, this uh, representing Jesus representing us. This, this is what I firmly believe. I want you to turn to First John chapter one, chapter two rather. First John chapter two. Now it's not the Gospel of John; it's the Epistle of John. Okay. And chapter 2, he says this, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin and, it's not but, it's and, that connects it with thought preceding it. So he knows we're going to sin. If any, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ, the righteous, And he himself is the propitiation, the covering of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now what he's saying is, is that this one who represents us before God pleads not our innocence. He pleads his wounds. And our standing before God is not determined by our innocence. Our standing before God is determined by His sacrifice. And my acceptance before God is on the basis, not of what I've done for God, but on the basis of what God in Christ has done for me. Now, we have one standing before us, before the Father, before the throne, who bears our sins. There's a second person there. He is Satan, the great accuser. Now, watch this. He's called that the great accuser. Now he accuses in three ways. He accuses man to man. That's why we have all these problems between one another, I think, is that Satan gets in and he accuses us to, to one another. He accuses man to man. He says... Look at that hypocrite. Or he says, uh, you know, that person's out to rip you off, that kind of stuff. Secondly, he accuses God to man. Where do you ever, where do you get those thoughts that come to your mind from time to time that God isn't fair or that God is punishing you for something you did way back in the past? 
Where do you get those ideas that God is not a just God? Let me tell you where you get them. You get them from the accuser. The accuser accuses God to man. And the accuser accuses, accuses man to God. He says to God, look at this man's sin. And he knows every single one of them. I mean, he's been a, a logical part of every one of our sins. So he is the great accuser. And there is no one here tonight who I, who, 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 I believe who claims the authority of Jesus Christ who would ever doubt the fact of the existence and the activity of this malignant one who would take our sins if he could and drive a wedge between man and man and man and God. And that's what he seeks to do. But notice the response of the judge back to the text. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? If you got an NIV, it says, is this not a burning stick snatched from the fire? A burning stick snatched from the, from the flames. Now, listen to me carefully. Satan, because he is the accuser, would seek to procure the withdrawal of divine favor from Joshua. That's what he's about there in this symbolism. To get God to turn against Joshua. And Joshua represents the nation, Israel. And so he's, in essence, seeking because of the sin of the people to drive a wedge between the people and God and cause God to reject his people because of their sin. Now listen to me carefully. If you've got a problem with security of the believer, one saved, always saved, you have, a real, you have a real problem really justifying that belief, that doctrine, and you, you believe everything else that you hear taught in a Baptist church, you can't believe that. You zero in on this verse. Because what is happening here is, is that God is saying to Satan, I rebuke you, I am not going to, to reject my people because of their sin for two reasons. Watch this. He says, I'm not going to reject them because I have chosen them. And you get into the doctrine of elections. You see, I have chosen Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure I know how to explain tonight. In fact, I know I'm not able to explain the doctrine of election. If you can, come on up here, I'll let you. It'll be the first time I've ever heard one do it. But I think what the doctrine of election, this choosing of God, means literally is this, that your salvation and mine is totally the work of God from beginning to end. It means that if you have been saved, it is because God originated and initiated your salvation. And you, He chose you long before you responded to His choice of you. So if you're saved, it's because God in His mercy has chosen you. That is, initiated salvation from the very beginning. Now... With your little New Testament hand, I want you to turn to the 15th chapter of the book of John. 
And I want us to read verse 16 of John 15. You got it there? We're going to look at it right quick. Got a deacon's meeting. We got choir practice. So you, you know, and I'm going to let you out in 30 minutes. So you get with me here. All right. Verse 15 of chapter 15. I mean, verse 16 of chapter 15. Look at the way this reads. It's in red letter. What does that mean? <laughs> it means Jesus said it. Yeah. It's got to be Jesus in red, okay? Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now I want us to go back to Zechariah, but on the way, since we're in the neighborhood, I want, to, I want us to stop off at John 6, okay? We're looking on our way back at John 6, and we're going to read verse 35 and following. Now look at this. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, we, I've heard that quoted that if you come to Jesus, he won't turn you away. It's not what it means. It means that if you come to Jesus, he'll never get rid of you. He'll never put you away. No. Oh, this this wonderful experience of salvation for that young lady in the first service. I'll share it with you sometime. She'll share it with you. But she, uh, I gave her this little book that had the sinner's prayer in it. And she memorized that prayer. And she was telling Brian, I memorize it so I can keep it in my heart. And he said, well, why would you? I say it every day, she said, a sinner's prayer. And she was saying to Brian, because now that I've got him, I don't want to lose him. And Brian shared with her that you can't lose him. It, you, he'll never cast you out. Now that you're his, he'll never cast you out. That's what he says. Look at that. And then he says in verse 38, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this, look at this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. I lose nothing. Now, let's go back to Zechariah and put that together with what he's saying. He said, I have chosen Jerusalem. You think I'm going to lose Jerusalem? I have chosen Jerusalem. I have chosen these people. And no wedge is going to come between me and them. All right? The second reason why this, this idea of security is there. He says, it's because are they not a brand? Are they not a stick of wood snatched from the burning? And he's, he's, it, it's, a, it's a, an anachronism of, uh, of um, what do you call it? What's it? What's it? Well, forget that. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a picture of... Uh, of uh, this, this, it's a picture of Egypt. And God comes and, and, and snatches his people out of Egypt like a, like a stick he snatches out of the fire. Now, and this is what he says. Because I have had mercy upon them in the past, 
That mercy is a motive to continue to have mercy on them in the present. Now this is what we do. Watch this. We say, well, I have forgiven that person so many times. I'm just run out of forgiveness. I mean, I, I've accepted them and I've given them a second chance and a third chance. I've snatched them like sticks from burning fire. But I've just run out of, 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 of love and I've run out of grace. God never says that. What he says is this. He has, therefore he will. And the fact that he has forgiven you is proof that he will continue to forgive you. I mean, when does he stop? Is it after 10 sins or after 100 sins? Or is it after 1,000? The very fact that he has snatched you from the fire and has forgiven you over and over again is evidence, motive, that he will continue to do so. Now, look at verses 4 and 5 because... Four and five talk about this new garment. Now, if he takes our filthy rags and puts them on himself, himself, what do we wear? Well, he says in verse four and five like this. He says, remove the filthy garments from him. That's the first act of justification. Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you in festal robes. Oh man, what is this? He said, I'm going to take away your sins. I'm going to take away your dirty garments. And I'm going to give you the garments, the clothes that a king wears. I'm going to give you festal garments. Now, festal garments were the garments they put on when they were celebrating, okay? When they had a big celebration going on, these were the garments the king wore, okay? You have a king's life in Christ, you see. Your life and mine ought to be a life of continual celebration. This day is a day of celebration. Put on your garments of celebration, festal garments. But he says, secondly... He said, I'm going to put a clean turban on his head. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it refers back to Exodus chapter 39, the, the, the clothes that the high priest wore. And the high priest wore this turban on his head, and on this turban was like a little plate um, that you'd put on your desk. You know, it says, preacher, you know, or I am a teacher kind of deal. I thought that would be kind of cute, but I didn't, evidently didn't ring a bell with you. But it's like, what, what do you call those shingles you hang out? You know, I am a stockbroker, Edward D. Jones and company, kind of a deal. And they wore these, these uh, little shingles on their head, and this is what it said, high priest. I think it said something like that. High priest, you know, I know it said this, holy unto the Lord. Holy unto the Lord. Oh man, look what it says. He said, I'm going to take off your dirty garments and I'm going to put on you the garments of a king and I'm going to put a turban on your head that identifies you as one who has been set apart to God. Holy and set apart. Now let me tell you what you are as a believer. You're a king and a priest. And because you are a king, you have authority. 
And because you are a priest, you have access to God, which leads us to chapter verse 6 and 7. talks about this access. Look at this. He says, And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house, and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those, among these who are standing there. Now, when you read that, what do you see? Let me tell you what I see. And, and, and uh, it's my humble, accurate opinion. He says, when I take these filthy garments off of you and I put the turban that identifies you as one who has been set apart to God, you have access into the place where you see these standing there. Who are these? Those are the angels who are tending his throne. You have the access to the throne of God to the very same place that angels are. What a thought. And he's talking about this high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies only once a year. He's the only one allowed there. He wears little bells on his robe so that he can, when he moves around, they know he's still alive because to enter into the holiest place is the most sacred and frightening place anyone could ever enter. And he said, I've, I'm going to, because I take these filthy garments off, I'm going to take down the veil and you can go right into the very presence of God just like a high priest does once a year. You can do that every day. You get that? I mean, every day of your life, you have access to the place where angels are. You have access to the place where only the high priest could go. Every day of your life, you have access to the throne. And the only way, the only reason you would not go there is because you don't choose to. Um, there are places in this town where Children have parents and they never darken the doors. Something's happened between them. There are places in this town where they're, I'm about to come out of my, uh, walking on two or three inches of my pants there, but I know it's a, I know it's a big guy did too. You know, okay. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was doing this too. You know, you notice that. There are places in this town where there are, there are the parents and, and, and their kids never darken the door. We think it's terrible. Let me tell you something. You have access into the throne of the Father, and you never go there. Look at verse 8. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest. Look at this. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. What is he saying? He's saying that ultimately... The ultimate bottom line of all this is, is that everyone, everyone who knows this Redeemer, he's going to talk about in just a moment, knows this Redeemer has access, everyone has access who knows him into the presence of God, to God himself. Now look at the way he calls this, how he, how he describes this access. The way we have access, look at this. He says, he calls him what? He calls him the branch. 
and it's, it's, it's capitalized. See that verse uh, 8? Who, who's he talking about? Talk to me. Who's he talking about? Huh? Jesus. Let, let me read you something. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In those days at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. That's Jeremiah. Listen to Isaiah. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. That's Isaiah 11. This is Isaiah 53. For he grew before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground, had no stately form of majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He's talking about this Messiah, this Messiah who's coming. A, 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 a root out of the stem of Jesse, re referring to the fact that he's coming from the line of David from the tribe of Judah, and his appearance is such that he's like a shoot coming out of the ground. An uncomely and, and lowliness of appearance is this Jesus, born of a virgin in a stable, lived without a home, without nothing except a robe somebody gave him, no place to lay his head, dead and buried in a borrowed tomb, this man who came, this branch, out of the stem of Jesse. He's coming, he said. And because he's coming, he's going to give us access to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me, he said. And look at the second way he describes him. For behold, the stone that I've set before Joshua. Well, who's the stone? This is what the psalmist said. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And, 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 and obviously in the temple there was this cornerstone on which rested the temple. He's talking about the, the basis of hope, the ground of certitude. He's talking about Jesus, the foundation of the world. He's coming. And because He is, we have certain and free access to the Father. And that's our ground of hope. And then this strange thing says, and on one stone are seven eyes. Now, when he, when he, did you notice that? Look at that. I, I'm sure you noticed that. He, he said, he talks about one stone I've set before you, Joshua. And, and then, he, then he says, and on one stone, as though there were two stones there, right? Doesn't take a nuclear physicist to figure that one out. But when he talks about this stone with seven eyes, it's like, this stone with seven eyes is just another of the one stone. That's the way it looks. It looks like there's one stone, but two of one. We're kind of getting over into the idea of the Trinity, right? Now, what is this stone of seven eyes? Let, let me read you from Isaiah 11, 2. Listen to this. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Jesus. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, let me, let me show you something. Count these. Count, count them with me on your fingers like this. 
the Spirit of the Lord. That's one. You got it? Okay. Hold, hold it up. One. There's a little boy's doing it for me. That's the way. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom. The Spirit of understanding. The Spirit of counsel. The Spirit of strength. Now we're going to go back. The Spirit of knowledge. And the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. How many did you get? Seven? Yeah, he's the sevenfold spirit. Now, to the Jew, the number seven was a sacred number. It was a holy number. What is he talking about, this other stone, this stone with seven eyes? He's talking about what Dave Salmon's talk said was, our, was the resource we have in common with Jesus, the Holy Spirit. So that on Jesus rested this sevenfold, this sacred, this Holy Spirit, the resource of His power. And because of this Holy Spirit, this branch of Jesse, we have access to God. Man, what encouragement. Now I want to wind this up. Should be a, a cheer go up when I say that. I want to wind this up with this. I want you to look at the purpose of the Messiah. Look at it. He said... In that day, declares the Lord of hosts. In that day, said, verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, you remember the day you were married? You, I suppose you don't remember the day you were born. You don't remember that day. Don't you? But you, okay. Somebody told you? You do remember the day you were married? When's your anniversary? I, I helped uh, uh, Tommy and Barbara celebrate their fifth anniversary. He, he bought my lunch the other day, Barbara. I said, yeah, celebrating our anniversary, right? Because I performed their wedding. You, you remember that, don't you? You remember, that day? you remember the day that your children were born? Sure, you remember that day. Wow, what a day. You remember, you remember that day when you were saved? You remember that day, don't you? And in that one day, all your iniquity, all of it. Not just what you've done, but all of it was, what do you say? Was removed in one day. And he's talking about the day of Golgotha. And he's talking about once and for all day. On that day of infamy, but glorious day for the believer, that day when Jesus died on Calvary, on that one day, Jesus removed the iniquity of all of us. And that one day. And the cross drove a wedge in time, in history. And the cross became the, the center focal point of everything else because on that one day, iniquity was removed. Glorious thought. So the book of Zechariah, Zechariah the prophet, is seeing this stone, this one who is full of the Holy Spirit, and he sees him as the remover of iniquity, and he sees it done in one great glorious day. And because of that, he says, look at this, 
Because of that, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. I don't know what that means, but this. Because your sin is forgiven and your sin is removed for that one glorious, in that one glorious event. Now you live your life and all that you have at the disposal of others. And in response to his friendship, you become a friend. And in response to his love, you become one who loves. And in response to your sin being removed, you dwell in safety. And everything you have, you offer to others in response to what he's done for you. You agree with me? It's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I'm sorry I can't make it say all it needs to say, but you can. You read it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ we have access to the very God who created us and the world. And I pray that we'll tonight come to him for life. For I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. In the spirit of prayer, if God has spoken to your heart, you need to make a commitment to Christ. I invite you to do that while we stand to sing.